This is the More to the Story podcast with Dr. Andy Miller. We hope you guys enjoyed today's conversation. Hey, everybody. Thanks for coming along to this podcast. It's been a real treat to prepare these and put these together for you. And it's been a, a bit of a journey for me as I've heard from people all over the world who find this content interesting. You know, whenever I'm recording my own content or interviewing somebody, it just seems like an interesting thing for me to do at that time. And then it's really been a delight to hear from people from every continent. They like to be able to, well, I guess in not Antarctica yet, but hear from people all over the world who find this encouraging and helpful to your lives. This is the More to the Story podcast, and I'm coming to you from Ridgeland, Mississippi, which is in the Jackson, Mississippi area. And I am with Wesley Biblical Seminary, where I serve as the academic dean and professor of theology and preaching here. It's really been something unique for me to be able to do to share the, this content with you. And here's one thing I want to make sure you know about. I'm offering a free resource for people, a free four-page PDF document that helps preachers and teachers move from exegeting Scripture, that's pulling out the meaning of Scripture, and bringing it to the point of proclamation. It provides some tools so you can creatively engage in that process, and you can get that for free if you go to andymillerthe3rd.com. That's andymillerii.com, and you sign up for my email list. So once you sign up for my email list, I'll automatically send you a link to get that free resource. Today, we're really delighted to have on the podcast Stuart Kellogg, who shares his wisdom as he studied and looked at what's going on in the life of the church in this post-COVID time. So I think you'll find this really interesting. My thanks to my sponsors who've helped make this platform platform possible. It means a lot to me that you come alongside of me. And if you're interested in sharing some of your ideas of what you think could come on this podcast, I'd love to hear from you. Thanks for checking this out. God bless you. Well, welcome to the More to the Story podcast. I'm so glad that you've come along. Today, I am privileged to have on the show with me, Mr. Stuart Kellogg, who's a retired media professional. He's an author, speaker. He's somebody who's actively involved in lay ministry around the country. Stuart, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Andy. Love being here. Well, um, and also you have a close connection with Wesley Biblical Seminary is one of the sponsors for this podcast. You've served on the board, you've been a student. So, uh, and you worked in the Jackson area for a while. Was that the case? That's right. I worked there almost a quarter of a century. I had moved a lot uh, in the business. I was in television, started in the talent end on air, and then got okay. into the management, news management. And part of that business is you move around to get to bigger markets. And, and I did a lot of moving. And um, uh, my goal had always been to run a TV station. And okay. so in November of 1991, moved to Jackson to run the ABC station uh, owned uh, by uh, Hearst Television, okay. a terrific company. And I, t I tell the story, and you'll appreciate this uh, with children. So our youngest, uh, Allison, turned 11 the March after we moved. I was about ready to take her to school. And and uh, she said, Daddy, I'm so excited. I said, well, of course, it's your birthday. And she said, no, I'm now more years older than houses I've lived in. Ha, ha, ha. Uh, so that was a, <laughs> we had moved around a lot, but I, I made a, a promise to her at that time and was able to keep it. So I uh, stayed in Jackson for 25 years. And during that time, I uh, got to go to Wesley, which was a wonderful, uh, wonderful seven years of nights and weekends and, and wow. loving the local seminary. Now, did you actually earn a degree in those seven years, or are you just taking classes for your own development? <laughs> yes, I did. No, I, I got a degree. You know, I've, I've liked that. If I'm going to do it, so I have a, a sixty hours uh, mass, a sixty hour masters in okay. Christian uh, studies. Yes. <laughs> 
Wow. Well, and, and, and then you've retired to and now help me know where you're you're in the kind of panhandle area, Florida. No, no, in Alabama, please. Okay. Uh, oh, know, forgive me. Forgive me. We're in the nice part. Yes, please. Yes. <laughs> we're right down the road uh, where it all comes together. This is the other LA, lower Alabama, we call it. And it was coming home, if you will. I'm a New Yorker. You, you can tell I'm not much of a Southern accent. And I moved uh, uh, from New York. I graduated from Syracuse University and uh, was in television there and moved down to Mobile to be a reporter at the CBS affiliate in Mobile, WKRG. And um, doing a story, met my wife, and uh, uh, we married, and uh, both the children uh, were born in Mobile, and I went into management across the street at the NBC station at the time, now Fox, WALA, and then in the mid-80s, 1985, we moved, and okay. so it, it's coming home. My wife, although born in Jackson, uh, grew up in Mobile, high school, college, and taught for quite a while, and so uh, just a couple years ago, uh, after retiring, uh, we came back. To this LA, Lower Alabama. I'm in Fairhope, which is across the bay from Mobile. Gotcha. Now it's interesting. You you let something slide there. You said you met her on a story. Does that mean like you were out like recording a story, like a tree fell on somebody's house and it happened to be her house? I mean, yeah. <laughs> give me the short version of that story. Oh, it's a great version. So no, she was a school teacher. Okay. And she, I can remember it uh, like yesterday. You know, March March first, nineteen seventy eight, and. And so I was given the assignment. She was a teacher at Theodore, which is an area just outside Mobile. And she was having a mock wedding. She, she taught family living. And so the kids had a mock wedding and then they would be paired up and they would have to go through certain uh, things in, in lives. They'd pick, pick a, a paper and it would say, um, you lost your job. So you'd have to go find a job. Um, somebody right. died. You'd have to price a funeral. Anyway, it's kind of a, a neat uh, story. So this was the mock wedding, the big mock wedding. So I went there and did the story. And uh, that's, that's how I met her. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. You know, wedding bells were in your future too. Isn't that funny? Yes. Yeah. So, uh, so about a little over about a year, a little about a year and a half later, uh, we married. And, oh, and wow. Have, yeah. And, and we've been uh, married now for uh, 42 and a half years. <laughs> Amen. Love it. So yes. we, we come today to talk about your new book, The Post-COVID Church. So this is something we've all been working through, and I served as a pastor for a year and a half in the midst of COVID, you know, worked through a lockdown and all those type of things. So I'm really anxious to hear what you've learned. Or actually, let's just start, like, what led you to write this book in the first place? So I, again, I'm in the laity. We had moved uh, from uh, Mississippi at the end of 2015 and retired. I moved to Georgia to help take care of my father-in-law, widowed and ill, and we were there for a couple of years, and after he passed, uh, we came back here. So we had been here just not that long um, when the pandemic hit, about a, about a year, and I was just watching as I was looking, trying to do different ministry things. I watched how various churches reacted at the beginning. Some, yeah. I called turtle churches, hunkered down, uh, cut, cut programs, and just waiting for normal to return. And then watching what other churches were doing, really reaching out and saying, this is an opportunity. And it just struck me. And so I started interviewing people and I wrote a column, a couple thousand word column. And I was trying to get it published. And I, I was working in the yard uh, one day and a name popped in my uh, head, Joe Stradinger. Joe Stradinger lives in Ridgeland, Mississippi, runs Edge Theory, uh, very much in the social media. He and I, after seminary, I studied under Chuck Colson. 
the Colson wow. Center for Christian Worldview. Yeah. And uh, I was in the fourth class. Uh, Joe from Mississippi was in the first class. So we had met through the alumni. Uh, his name popped into my head as I was raking. <laughs> so I hadn't talked to him in five years. I texted him. I said, I'm working on this. He texted right back and said, let's talk today. And we talked. He said, look, you can write an article. Somebody read it. They'll nod and go on. He said, you need to get in social media. Let's make this a movement. And so that was the impetus for the post-COVID church, uh, starting as a Facebook group, uh, then growing into a podcast, a website, an app. Um, and so I would do regular uh, videos, blogging, interviews, podcasts, just looking at what different um, churches, but also professionals such as George Barna, who's done research for uh, you know a couple of generations on the church. I was able to speak to him and others. So uh, leadership experts, and so just kind of a, a broad look at what different churches were doing. Put in a lot of surveys, um, and so as it grew and the followers grew, uh, my wife Beth said, "You need to make it into a book, and you've got all this material." And so that's. Uh, what I did and, and published it uh, late in uh, 2021. Kind of the idea is that the, the subtitle of the post-COVID church is an action plan to thrive, not just survive. Right, um, great. So that's, 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 that's the idea of it. Now, even the name of the movement, the social media movement, the podcast, the book, this whole idea that is interesting because it says post-COVID and it's January, 2022, and I don't know that we're yet there. We're not post-COVID. So what do you, what are you getting at with the name? Yes, and uh, that's one of those things saying, boy, if I'd known more, because I, I believe it's going to be endemic. It's going to be around like the flu. So will it? Will we really choose? But from a pandemic standpoint, that's going to end. And we could argue that it's it's close to ending as a pandemic. Yeah, sure. Um, and so the idea is... I just like post-COVID, I guess I could have called it post-pandemic, uh, uh, in the sense of what the church will be on the other side right. uh, of, the, of uh, the shutdowns, of the changes. And of course, as you know, Andy, on top of this is all that was happening to the church anyway. The church was losing influence. It was losing members. It was had all these issues. This simply accelerated it and has, right. has pushed it faster. And that's happened on many fronts, not just in the, in the church, right? That's what people have said has happened with COVID, is that it's an accelerator of uh, business problems, of accelerator of social problems, um, things to like uh, mental health concerns, all of these things. It's just magnified what's already exactly. going on. And so that's likely what you've seen happen in church. So what do you see? Like, what is your biggest concern with the church now in the midst of COVID and emerging to a post-COVID state? My biggest concern is that too many churches are saying, okay, we'll just go back. We're back to normal. And, wow. and I see it where I am. Uh, and it's like, man, you don't understand. Um, you look at the numbers, and we know young the young always left, right? Uh, they would they would leave the church, and then when they married and had kids, they would come back. Well, they're not coming back. I mean, the data, and it's in the book there, the, the tracking the the ones ten years ago in their twenties, now in their thirties, they're not coming back as they did before. Um, the the whole idea of how even going into the idea of uh, how politicized the church is it's it's affecting the witness of 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 the church if you will uh, to the lost um it is um the whole idea of where does the church fit for those who used to go i'm seeing it with the with the younger families and 
they're not coming as often. And so it's even getting more gray headed. I think the problem in the leadership is they're just going back to what, what it was rather than stopping and saying is, is any business, let's put it in crass business terms during a recession would stop and say, we got to do something different. We have to look at, at, at it differently. Not that no churches are doing it. I don't think nearly enough churches are stopping to look and say, what is it that we should be doing? For example, staff, right? Yeah. What is it uh, that the staff should be doing? Should there, should there be as much staff? Should, there, uh, should they be doing different things? Um, J.B. Placluda, uh, who's a, a, a church in Texas, I talked to, and man, as soon as the door shut, everybody on staff added a digital, uh, a digital addition to their job description <laughs> because yeah. they, that, that was just necessary to connect with the small groups and that sort of thing. And so it's this idea of, are we just doing the same thing or are we looking at, at how to uh, structure the church in what it does, especially with connections? Because I see that connection between the church and the, and the members fraying and it, it's not just going to automatically go back together. Yeah. So the the things that need to change, you, you indicated staff. Uh, you know, do you mean like the staffing structure or what staff do? I mean, you can't probably both, but I'm just curious, what is it that needs to change with the way where we staff churches? I think it starts at the top. One of the things George Barna, uh, he's, he's called the most quoted man in the church. He's been doing research for, for decades. And, and I talked to him about it and he has an important part of the book. And one of the things he says is, you know, what, how do we hire, how do, how do we hire pastors, right? How do they teach and preach? Sure. Do we even look at leadership? you know, too often, no. And it's a tough skill set, right? Um, so I, so part of it is, how do we set up the leadership from the, from the top? What is it that the staff is doing? Why are you doing it? I mean, this is the perfect time. I used to do this in business. Just every once, every year, step back and say, why are we doing what we're doing? Sure, <laughs> Just because we've sure. always done it, right? Uh, but so much has changed. And the, the biggest part, and this is, this is one of my, if you will, pet peeves, uh, when you look, is is too much disconnection and not use of the, the laity, um, the talent okay. and the use, I call it. I mean, you've got unbelievable amount of talent and even the smallest churches. And how are you using that talent? I think it's a combination of, I, I think too many of the staff or pastors are a little intimidated, perhaps, or, or don't want to give up that control. On the other hand, some of in the, in the pews saying, you know, hey, come and entertain me. Um, you know, this isn't my job. And yeah. There's got to be um, there's got to be this connection, I believe, where you are using that talent uh, in the pews to help with the mission. So, what are the, I'll give you an example when you ask about structure. A lot of it. What's our mission? What did Christ say? Uh, to make disciples. So I, everything I believe should go through the filter of a discussion. Is whatever we're doing at the church is it helping make disciples? Right. Um, and if it isn't, then we at least discuss, then why are we doing it? And there may be a reason, but it will help focus the mind on, on why we're doing all these things. What, what are some of those things that you see typically that happen where we aren't making disciples? Like what are, what are some things like that, that typical churches have, if there is such a thing as a typical church that are doing that, a, that aren't producing disciples? I would say I'd start with the young and by young, I don't mean real young. I mean, teenage high school. Let's, let's look at that high school ministry. Um, and, and this idea of how is that set up? Is it an entertainment or 
are you teaching biblical worldview? Are you teaching something that will help them when they leave the shell of this yeah. nice little shell and and they walk into the philosophy class at college as a freshman <laughs> with, with and and they're running into the secular world and they're running into this university and so many people are going to challenge their faith. Do they have any basis? Have they been instructed? Do they know how to defend the faith? So I, I see that as probably the key, especially now with all the uh, the issues that are surrounding the culture. How do you even have that discussion about sexuality, for example? Can you even mm. talk about it? Can you defend the faith? So I think that that's a, a, a key area is that uh, high school ministry. And I think too often it's just been done the, the way it's the way it's always done. Corey Miller from Ratio Christi. I don't know if you're aware of Ratio Christi, but it's a ministry around the world and it's on campuses and um, and it's an evangelical Christian group. And a lot of it does. They'll either they'll sponsor um, uh, debates sometimes, but a lot of it is with Christian worldview. And, and Corey mentioned, you know, the idea of the uh, skinny jeans and fog machines. You know, if that's if that's all the high school kids are getting instead of this this rich uh, a biblical basis for how to defend their faith, they end up coming to campus and, and just not having that uh, uh, background to, to be able to truly disciple uh, because they haven't been discipled. So I think that's a, that's a one yeah. big key area for a lot of churches. So this is that moment for people to really like, uh, I can't, I keep going back to like, you know, never waste a crisis, which is not necessarily something that I should, should quote, but the idea is like, <laughs> here you have this moment where everything is being questioned. So therefore we take advantage of the opportunity to really look at is, is the kind of um, Christian moralistic babysitting that can happen sometimes in youth groups and not saying all the time, but it, is that something that needs to be revamped? Like where, why is it that COVID gives an opportunity for that to, to, to switch? Because there? anything that's a major disruption, right? Anything, a major disruption that makes you stop and and see what's going on is is a natural way to say whoa you know the door's shut i mean when does that have everything shut so what do we do when the door's open so in other words it's that it's that big um catastrophe if you will that that focuses the mind and i i think that's why uh at, at that and make everybody thinking oh my gosh uh what's going on and and here's the the flip of it andy that that's the cool part if you will there's never been a greater need, right? right? Because even the most hardened atheist may not admit it, but they're saying something's going on here. Yeah. <laughs> so, this, this is changing. And so, wow, here, here, here's a, a, an opportunity. And, and I love uh, one of the guys uh, I, I, I spoke to when we were talking about uh, the church at this time, Bill Wilson, and, and he's head of Center for Healthy Churches, and he said, there's never been a better time to be the church. Wow. And he didn't mean easiest, he didn't, but you talk about the need, um, and you look at any issue, um, and, and one of the ones I love talking about is the racial issue, and, and the mm. whole issue of critical race theory, uh, which is absolutely contradictory to biblical justice and and it's tough to even have that discussion but here's this issue in which what a wonderful this christian faith has the answer <laughs> has the answer to the issue uh so what an opportunity to talk about it and to be able to to, to um say this is we have we have been reconciled in christ right uh so here's the answer but now let's do it let's let's 
let's make it work as Christians rather than going into some neo-Marxist idea of <laughs> putting everybody in a uh, you know oppressor or oppressed. We we have a much better answer. But how many people can can really explain that and share it? Right. Well, the challenge there ends up being so clear in that even just talking about something, you can get you divide yourself. Um, even some people will be frustrated that you said what you just said. You might be listening to the, the, this podcast, but nevertheless, like you're saying, uh, what, I mean, do you think that's necessary? The church, we have to speak truth to power. We are the ones to stop and, and speak into it. And and I'm I've been surprised as I've spoken. I thought I'd get a little more pushback because usually it's an evangelical group, a more conservative group. You know, I feel strongly. I talk about it in the book. You know, you you get a church that becomes an appendage of a political party uh, and the white evangelicals and, and the GOP, that's not a good thing. We're supposed right. to speak truth to power. And uh, if something's wrong, it doesn't, you don't, um, as I talk about Bill Clinton, you know, you don't get him because of, of what he did uh, sexually, but then you give a pass to somebody who has an R by their name. I mean, that, that's not biblical, that doesn't make sense. And the, the other thing is that it, um, and, I, and I try to, to get past all the political to say, look, it's hurting our witness because the image of the, the evangelical church, well, you're just a bunch of you know, crazy white wing, wing nuts and uh, we're not gonna listen to you. But here we have this field white with need to talk about the need for Christ. And if you're not able to witness because, um, because the brand has been tarnished, uh, that's a big problem for the church, mm -hmm. and it has to it, it has to change. It has to be willing to change, and that's not easy. And I understand that politically, but it, but I, I think it's critical, and I think it's what Christ did. Did Christ speak truth to power? I, I think he did. <laughs> right, right. Um, I, I've found that's been interesting as I've spoken up on some of these issues myself. The challenge has been is that people might think that. Um, I'm not for uh, the elimination of racism. They, they, well, if you're serious about the racial concerns that happen in our country, and you've lit, you lived in Mississippi for 25 years, and, and I've lived here for not even a year, we're aware of the challenges in this state and all across the country. Um, so it, you want to do something about it. And the most obvious answer that's out there comes from the perspective that takes the worldview of critical theories in general and then creates a situation where you have people who live in a supremacist culture and every act unknown or unknown, implicit or explicit is an act of racism. And there's an oppressed and an oppressor. There's a, a, a separation that comes. And I think it, it sounds like, okay, well, I want to do something. And this is what uh, some people who are active and racial reconciliation are saying that we should do, let's do it. Well, then it's interesting I found is that um, I've just asked, what is the intention? Like, where do we want to be? And what what is the actions that will come? And what I've seen is that that's actually led people to separate more, to distinguish ourselves more and more away from our, uh, you know, actually make our racial category, categories more strong and more part of what we're doing. So like that's really, um, and it even led in some groups to separate people out for churches and church groups to separate people out based upon the race. And I feel like that's retrograde. 
Like this is moving back. And so instead of taking a conversation to another level, we end up going backwards. Do you see that too, Stuart? Absolutely. And that's the, and that comes with the hard part, but and too often the churches and look, they're still largely white and black. That's just, you know, I don't care whether you're in Mississippi or New York. Um, right. That's just a fact. And, and too few times, and it takes effort. You know, I've thought one of the things I talk about in the book is just this idea. And I, you know, once there's a relationship between a, a black pastor and a white pastor and just just having 10 people from each of the church uh, churches just go to some neutral place just to sit and talk and listen i can't tell you and again i worked in a, in a business uh, my company was, was a large mix of african-american and, and whites and uh and you hear stories and you see things and that you didn't uh, and i don't think that happens enough but just to sit and listen and, and to listen to the story of the African-American and, and, and what they had to, to say to their kid before they go out in the car, right, because right, right. they're going to be driving to a white area. You can say, well, that's nonsense. It happens. Uh, I have seen it in Mississippi when I used to take a nap when my wife would, uh, would shop at the mall and nothing happened to me. And I remember watching this black man doing the same thing. Well, the security came and got him up because, mm -hmm. you know, so just to hear those stories and that's the starting and i wish more churches would do that and there's been a lot of efforts that's the good thing about mississippi i mean you can't deny the background right, right? Yeah. in new york where i grew up they pretend it's not a problem right we're not right. racist here Nonsense. yeah there's there's no interaction in mississippi there's a lot of interaction there has to be interaction so at least there's a little more talking about it but i well, think that's been my experience too in living to in the south in general old. Um, in the South in general, I have been in a place where, uh, where I grew up in, the, in uh, Chicago and Detroit. Um, I think the same problems exist, but in, in the South, people are forced to be together more and they're in a situation they have to work out these challenges. Okay, I want to move on to, from the racism discussion. That's obviously something that we're all having to think about time and time again and, and change and make sure we're being servants and Christ-like as we serve our communities. I imagine that you have to think a lot about with the post-COVID church, with the challenge of worship, like how worship happens, um, how it's happened during the pandemic. I mean, I've, I know there are some churches that are not even, they're still not back from COVID. Like they, they, and some are doing, some have made huge changes, like where immediately they started figuring out a way to have a little better TV production, online presence on Facebook, social media, YouTube, et cetera. Um, but some have just said, nope, back to normal. I mean, what are you seeing that's happening with how Sunday, not just Sunday morning, but worship experiences are happening? I think more are, are trying to go back to the normal or, and a lot were already doing some, some kind of hybrid. And I guess that's the upside of this happening when it did. Uh, you, you got an iPhone, in a Facebook page, in a tripod, and you can stream a broad, you know, you can stream a, a, a service and just think 30, 40 years ago, that, that wouldn't have been possible. So the barrier to entry is so low. And I think it's important that that continue because there's a, a group of folks who are simply uh, not going to be comfortable coming back, especially as these waves come in. So I think there'll be a, a bit of that hybrid, but I think the most effective are going to be the ones that have discovered how can we use this social media? Look, it's out there. You can't, you can't put it back in the box. And I think there's a lot more negative and positive to, to our culture and society, but that doesn't matter. Um, but how can we use it to, to stay connected? How can we use it 
to make a difference in making disciples? How can we do, use it to marshal together? Even it's not perfect, but even when we can't meet, and I think the most effective ones have creatively done that. Um, but also just the old-fashioned way. I, it was interesting as I talked to different folks around um, those that, um, even though there was a plenty of staff, they were getting paid. Uh, you know, no one was coming in. They never heard from anybody at the church. You know, mm. but others made it a mission and they, to connect uh, with people. It, just a phone call, just something to connect as the body together. And I think that this has all gone to reinforce the importance of the body being together. And if not in one place, worshiping, um, even if that gets disconnected, can we be together at least connecting by talking and being there and sharing? That's, that's better than nothing. But too many didn't do that. And, I, and that's why you know, we're looking at the, even the churches coming back before this latest wave came, the Delta wave, um, 30 to 50% is the average, um, as far as attendant, you know, yeah. uh, coming yeah. back. And so, and, you know, once you get out of that habit, and again, if you haven't been connected, if you haven't been talking to folks, if you haven't been, then you'll may go somewhere else or you'll may sit and watch, um, services online or, or may just drop out altogether. And I, and I'm afraid that is happening far too often because it's, it's too easy to drop out now. Yeah. Two things you said I want to pick up on. The first is this, is uh, you said all you need is a tripod, an iPhone, and you're ready to go. You're ready. I don't know if we need anything else. I mean, certainly things can be uh, have a higher quality. Um, when when we, we went immediately, the first Sunday of the shutdown, we just did that. That's all we had. We um, And that was actually in, during the lockdown was when I had the highest attendance um, uh, online. You know, we ended up having over 150 on with us live in that time. Well, the, those numbers went down as people started to come back, but we still maintained a steady audience, probably 40 to 50 that were always online with us. And sometimes that would be one of those views, viewers would be a room full of people or a, a family that would be there. But here's what's interesting. I think maybe you can expose a challenge of this. I had several people say to me, um, Okay, yeah, I can do that. I just need a camera, a tripod, and let's uh, uh, iPhone and a camera. Oh, sorry, I keep on getting it wrong. An iPhone, which is a camera, an iPhone and a tripod, and we're ready to go. Well, why aren't people going? And I had one person honestly say to me, "I don't like what I'm showing. You know, I don't like, I don't want the pressure of um, having to be live. I don't think the quality is that great." So they just didn't do it. And I, that's churches in my denomination. I'm not sure what their purpose is, but I don't know if, if 10% are streaming now in, um, among Salvation Army churches. Maybe there are. May, I might be wrong with that. But from what I see, I don't see that many. So what, 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 what's behind that? What's underneath that, Stuart? Well, it was, and it, it was at 90 to 95% were doing something online. Uh, pretty amazing because they could at least – at least do something at the forefront. I've not seen the data of how many, but I would, you know, based on that, I would think a lot of folks are at least at least doing that. Some did the pre-production. These are normally a bigger one where they taped it ahead of time and produced it so it looked looked a little nicer uh, because they had the equipment and that sort of thing. Um, uh, but but clearly, and I don't think that'll change. I think even if it's the most basic, maybe one or two cameras, um, and again, to, to buy a camera, not just a phone and it's, it's not that difficult to, to get in to uh, the business of streaming. I think that's going to continue. And I think 
the, the smart churches, and we saw it uh, during, did creative things with kids, did creative things with seniors uh, to connect and to use um, uh, different ways to connect either uh, with particular classes or with particular one, one uh, church uh, that I, I spoke to the associate pastor on, on the podcast. They just decided to hook up and on Wednesday night, the pastor would sit and just answer questions, you know, mm. uh, and, and, and do that from the basement of his house. <laughs> so you can just do, you can do kind of crazy things. Let's, let's, let's try some things. And that's the, the whole bit. If it doesn't work, no big deal, you know, try something else. So I think that will continue. And I think that's important, but it's too easy to get again, out of the habit of actually connecting uh, either physically or at least connecting on, on the phone with people. So, so that, there is that community because I'm afraid that's what we're losing. Yeah. You know, during the shutdown, I realized we had a congregation about 150 to 200 people um, where we were serving that there's just so many people that all of a sudden we had lost contact with them. And then we were coming up to that first Easter where we weren't going to be back. Like, how's this going to work? And what we did was we were able to set up a time to go by regions of our city. We lived in a large metropolitan area where we would say, okay, we're going to be in the Northeast section. That's all of these people, you 20 people. And we said, we're just going to come through and we're going to do porch visits or front yard visits. And we'll keep our distance. We won't, we won't shake hands. We won't hug. Um, we had a little band that came along and it's like we went caroling, uh, Easter caroling. But what we found is we could hit probably um, 20 people in that, in an afternoon. And so people be ready for us. We come as we, uh, as we come as we could. Now, what, what I realized in doing that was like, whoa, this is a great idea. The pastor often has like the obligation and like the burden of visiting people. It just can seem overwhelming because how can you get to everybody? And then you end up just going to the people who are sick, but people appreciate it so much. And you get to know people so much better by seeing them where they live. And so what I realized is no matter what, if I was to serve again as a pastor, when I first come, I'm just going to do COVID or not, do these front yard caroling visits, you know, just go through five minutes here, move on to the next one. It worked out pretty well. But I think that that's this idea of like, oh, wait, there's a need, there's something that needs to happen. There needs to be a, a connection. And I think that that's what you're trying to drive us back to is like the church has a function of making disciples. Now, how do we, in light of this opportunity, get some new forms so that mission can function. Is that the kind of big idea you're going for? Absolutely. And, and it may be what you said. I may think of Warren Latham, who's, who's a, a retired district superintendent in Georgia, and he pastored a very large church. He now he started Venezuela now, which is a, uh, and has a seminary in Venezuela, which is, you can imagine, a difficult place to be. But he, one of the things he talked to me about obviously that shut down, but they went to the home. And so all of a sudden they were in homes. But the other thing that did, there were pastors on, on the rooftops <laughs> in Venezuela as everyone was shut down and the pastors were preaching from the rooftops. And another pastor in America saw that and said, we should be doing that. Yeah. So yeah. it goes right to it. We shouldn't have to have a, a COVID pandemic for, the, for that to happen, to go to the home. So I think that's exactly what you're talking about. What are some other innovations that you've seen that you could uh, you could advise other church leaders um, to implement? I'll give you an example of, um, and I, I share this example from my own uh, time in Georgia. 
And this goes to the idea of saying, what talent is there? I think too few times, does the church have an inventory of the talent there? Mm. Do you know what your members do? And maybe not even professionally, it's just that, you know, they they did something else and then changed careers. So it just may be an interest. And I'll use an an example, Uh, this fellow I got to know who had retired to Georgia where we were, and um, he was the retired head of human resources worldwide for Union Carbide. Pretty darn big job. And then he had gone after retirement in different ministries to help organization in management. And uh, the church uh, we were in was having some personnel issues and I got to know the pastor and I said, do you know Pierre? And downstairs in our class, I told him what his background is. I said, I think he's got a lot of help that he could get. Oh, really? And the information, never talked to Pierre. You know, so... And again, I think it's a sense of, I don't want to give up control or whatever. So, but the, the smart ones are looking for where's the, the, the talent there. And I'll use it, an example from this, this little church, Grace Chapel, 180 people in South Carolina. Rusty Graven is the pastor and everything's shut down. And then they're starting to think about coming back out. Well, it turns out one of his parishioners was a retired engineer who had worked at public TV. And he said, you know, I can get some equipment. He got this equipment and put together a radio station. Now it was one mile diameter, you know, but he got the equipment. It didn't cost him anything, put it together so that a couple of folks live nearby, but the other older folks would come into, um, they weren't comfortable coming into the church, but they'd sit in their car and listen to the, to the pastor, you know, wow. But this pastor said he found out, he asked the guy, go do it, you know? And so I think that's the, just letting, go do it again. Will it help make disciples? Yes. I think that will, that's an example of making disciples. So those are a couple of, I guess, if you will, a negative and and a positive, but it goes just to the, that idea of what's the talent. Um, And I don't know, I can't, I think maybe one church and I've, we've moved all over Beth and I we're in our 16th house. So we've moved a lot, part of my business, a lot of churches, I think maybe there was one whoever did a, you know, what do you do? What's your background? You know, what do you have that, you know, a talent inventory? And I just think that's, that's one big takeaway that I think could really make a difference to the church and, and to the Great Commission. Yeah, absolutely. What are some of the other things in your book that you highlight that you'd like to share here that, um, I mean, we talked about staffing, we talked mm-hmm. about dealing with some of the really ideological challenges that the churches have, like taking those head on. You also talked then about the nature of worship and that keep everything in the focus of discipleship. But is there anything else? Um, I guess we could just, you could just say, go read the book, which we'll, we'll offer here to people to make sure you well, go. I could say that, but no, I would tell you, I, the, the big one, and I just touched, I just touched a little, it's available on Amazon. Is, is uh, the Christian worldview. Uh, again, I mentioned that I got to study under Chuck Colson, which is an unbelievable experience, and just my eyes open to the idea of a worldview. We all have a worldview. It's the lens through which we look at the world and make sense of things. Christianity is a worldview, and it just is such an important part to answer these tough questions, whether it's sexuality or racial issues, is, is having that Christian worldview, uh, that lens, and, and far uh, too few Christians have a worldview uh, that is a Christian worldview. Uh, we've, we've gotten 
you know, far too, you look at, at some of the data and, and I've got some in there, the, the idea of the percentage of, of Christians who believe uh, you earn your way into heaven. I mean, these are evangelical Christians, about a half. I say, how does that even happen? How, how can something as, as basic as that? So this idea of thinking as Christians and um, thinking biblically, but also thinking through that lens of a Christian worldview for everyone, but especially uh, for the young because of what they're coming up. I, that's that's got to be a focus, and it isn't, and it's um, it drives me kind of crazy because I just think it's so important for people to understand how to make sense of the world through the Christian perspective, through that lens uh, of their faith. Um, yeah. so that was a that's a, a big oh, takeaway that's missing. And boy, you talk about a, a, a time when it's important. It's now to know what you believe is how we yeah. know. What I mean, believe. as we leave from um, become a post COVID church, like we have to be, so this isn't just necessary. Your book and ideas aren't necessarily just related to the pandemic, but it's more or less, what is the church supposed to be? I mean, this is, this is a book about the mission of the church. Is that right? Right. And how, in, in light of what we've gone through, uh, and basically, how can we use it, if you will? Again, you don't, as you, as you put, I think it was Raul Manuel who used that term. We don't want to, you know, you don't want to, um, was it a, a disaster to go unused or whatever That's that right. thing is, uh, uh, how to use it. So yes, it's, it's how the church and it's, it's going back to what we are to be because we've lost our way and the church has lost it. Again, it's influence in the culture. And we've seen that we're now up to um, it's, it's now one, it was one of uh, five. Now it's one out of four nuns, N-O-N-E-S who are not connected. Uh, church membership is now below 50% in a generation. It's gone from three and four uh, mm -hmm. to, to less than half. I mean, it is, and again, the, the trends were already going and this has really pushed it. So what are we supposed to be doing? And then you look at it and the burnout rate, some of the data on uh, pastors and yeah, well, you talk about a, a tough job and it is, um, which is why they even need more, more help. But that idea of the potential burnout and, and again, what, what does the body and it's all of us and it's not this staff and people and you know and, and i think that's something that'll be a big big plus to the to those churches as i say that thrive will be that they'll be using that talent and it'll it'll help the pastors and the staff and it'll help make it uh the idea of making disciples and getting outside the walls yeah here i want you to use your imagination with me for a second to there's like two options. Like you mentioned, there's a turtle churches, a hunker down. Um, there's like option to not respond just to go back to usual. I want you to, to describe the future of that church. And then I want you to describe like a church that takes the criticism and the challenge uh, that you're presenting as an opportunity for growth and like what that church could be. So could you contrast the, the vision of uh, kind of playing the movie out, so to speak, of what the futures could be for the, like if, if you're the turtle church, this is what's going to happen. And if you're the church that right. responds to this challenge, this is who you can be and this is the impact you could make. Yeah, and I think that the turtle churches in a generation uh, will be pretty much dead uh, because literally uh, it's just the uh, life tables, right? As uh, they are more whiteheaded anyway and um, they're not uh, going to be growing. And I, I think they're going to be really those relics. And it's almost that, that Europe 
European model in the sense that even the old established churches are there, but these these giant facade uh, facilities with you know 40 or 50 people. So I think they will wither. Um, uh, they'll be merging, and um, I think in part of this too is that a lot of those are the mainline denominations, which are as as you know and you've talked about on your podcasts are. are as they in, in, embrace the culture and uh, walk away from the biblical uh, foundations, uh, that's just going to exacerbate it. I, but there are plenty of evangelicals that are in that hunker down mood right, too, and right, they are right. going to, to have that awakening. I think the other will be, uh, it doesn't matter whether you're the most innovative, not that there won't be big churches, but the church is going to be smaller. And I say that just because we have this number of members you can just look at the the membership is down uh and we're in a country and i'm talking about america now and we're in a country with very little population growth and um the people are leaving so the church is going to be smaller i think those churches that lean into it because they will be uh speaking truth to power and and taking stands are going to come under a much more um uh, difficult times challenges um, as will individuals, it's going to be tougher. Uh, for example, um, you know, in the, in the business world, an evangelical Christian who happens to stand up for this, the idea, the biblical idea of marriage, uh, even to have the discussion, it's not even allowed. You know, right. that, that's going to cost jobs, and so, so the church itself, I think, is going to be smaller. I think the the ones though that again lean in, are creative, use the talent. Uh, even though they may be a bit smaller numerically, are going to have uh, uh, an exponential impact in the community because the needs are so much greater. I mean, just look around us at what those needs are, and I, I think they will be those islands that'll that'll be making a difference, and, and that will stand out that way, and that will be the model, if you will, for uh, what Christ called the church to be. Uh, Amen. But I think overall, it'll probably be smaller, and even the bigger churches. Are going to be smaller in the sense of decentralizing uh whether the home church model or the small group model and having more flexibility to go serve that northeast part of the you know yeah, the town yeah, on your sure, own yeah uh, rather than the big mother church everything happening there I, right I that's for the, sure the vision and i think that's exciting absolutely yeah. well, i have one more question for you but i want to remind people if you're tuning into this podcast. This is the more of the story podcast. And if you are able to join my email list, uh, we can go to Andy Miller, the third that's Andy Miller, com. I have some available free resource for you. If you are a person who is serving in ministry in any way as a lay leadership or as a preacher, we've I put together a tool for preparing for sermons and for teaching from scripture. So the idea is it walks you through an inductive Bible study method and with tools to kind of pull out things that would be significant to help you prepare an engaging message. So you can get a, a free copy of that resource. It's a four-page PDF if you sign up at for my email list at andymillerthe3rd.com. I'd love to have you do that. And if you could take a minute to subscribe to this on YouTube or subscribe on um, hit, hit like on YouTube as well, but subscribe on podcast channels too. That would be helpful to us. And also I recommend you go find the post-COVID church where there's a lot of great interviews with Stuart. If you like what you've he heard here, he has a way of getting to some, some amazing guests as you've already heard here. So I just recommend that you check that out with him. Okay, Stuart, here's my last question. 
since this is the more to the story podcast, the way I think about that is like, it's like a, there's a theological sense to it too, that we're not just about kind of getting our, getting our sins forgiven and being done, but there's the process of sanctification as well, where God's spirit can make us more and more like Jesus. So there's more to the story of salvation, but also I like to think we, we get a little deeper with people to find out more of their story. So Stuart, is there more to the story of you? Is there something about you that you don't often get to tell? Yeah, and and I've found that since I'm going out now and speaking about the book, I, I do get to tell a little more of the story. I find it, and, and this is what's so beautiful about the Wesleyan story, uh, you know, I was an adult. I, as I mentioned, grew up in New York, uh, went to, um, you know, a mainline Presbyterian church and, you know, was part of the youth group. Uh, as I look back now, I call myself a functional Unitarian. Wow. Um, you know, we talked about Jesus at, at Christmas and Easter, uh, never the Holy Spirit. Oh, my gosh. Uh, you know, so so this idea. So I, I go from New York to Mobile, Alabama, in the heart of the Bible Belt, and people talking about having a personal relationship with Christ. Is, what are you talking about? I mean, that's how ba- I'd never really heard it. As I look back now, I remember one spring day in Syracuse. It was one of the few nice days we had that spring. Um somebody from Campus Crusade for Christ sitting next to me. And, and I didn't know what he was talking about. And I then realized later, as I moved to Mobile, this idea of personal relationship with Christ. I gave my life to Christ. I, I can point to that 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 Monday morning in, in my apartment. But then one, I, I was a member of a, a mainline Presbyterian church. I remember telling the pastor, and, and he said, that's nice. I mean, it was uh-huh. like, you know. And so there was nothing around. And so everything was just that personal relationship going to heaven. And it really wasn't until fast forward a couple decades. I'm in Jackson. I'm getting around a group of evangelicals and then getting uh, through Dr. Matt Friedemann, who I knew professionally, and he got me to start classes at Wesley, this idea of no, no, this is, this is a bigger, it's not just sitting around waiting for heaven to come. You know, we're called to be transformed and to continually be transformed and, and live that life um, differently here constantly. And so that, that just opened my eyes and the challenge. And I still, um, to this day, I mean, have that issue of, okay, how am I doing my walk? Uh, yeah, yeah. What am I called to do? Um, I, I I share with you. I don't have a problem sharing with struggles. Um, I talk openly. Uh, when I was in uh, Jackson uh, with a depression, I, yeah. I um, saw a professional, a Christian counselor. Um, I like to talk about that because I think too few people talk about mental health. Right, um, right. But it took it took a lot of, and I still have have some some issues with that. Uh, but all along this path. And people would look on the outside, I oh, pretty successful professionally, you know, is this idea of, of questions and, um, and that, that darker time where, um, boy, if there weren't Christ in that walk, how would I have grown? You know? Yeah. So, wow. So that's a little different. And I don't get to talk about that enough. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm glad you did just now. Thanks so much for your time, Stuart. It's been a blessing to have you here. And again, check it out on Amazon, Post COVID Church, or just Google it. You'll find a variety of resources available for your church. And really just to think about where God's taking you and the church in the future. Thanks, Stuart. Andy, thank you very much for having me. I've really enjoyed uh, talking about, yeah, talking about the book, but more importantly, talking about the issues that uh, are 
facing the church. And um, again, what a wonderful time to be the church. <laughs> Amen. <laughs>